In a world where planet-threatening, civilization-ending, humanity-uniting movie tropes lie scattered throughout a sea of film, one disaster response expert, with the help of her plucky producer sidekick, will gather together a panel of experts to discuss. Wait, what? Why the f did they do that? That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. I'm your host, Anna. And I'm, of course, joined by the always smashing, never green Rev. <laughs> Wait, never green or evergreen? Uh, potato, potato. <laughs> uh, well, this week we're looking at The Incredible Hulk. Released in 2008, it is the second movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Bruce Banner, played by Edward Norton, is working with Betty Ross, played by Liv Tyler, on a project to make people immune to gamma radiation. The experiment is actually part of her dad, Thaddeus Ross, trying to recreate the super soldier serum. Confident in his work, Banner decides to test on himself and transforms into the gamma-powered Hulk, a state he reverts to whenever his heart rate is over 200 beats per minute. And this is all in the opening credits. We find Banner hiding in South America, where he has been communicating with a U.S. scientist who he believes is working to help cure him. So he travels back to the U.S. to meet Dr. Samuel Stearns, only to discover that Stearns has been replicating his blood for use in other experiments. While at the lab, Banner and Betty are caught and taken away, but before they can get too far, the mercenary Blonsky, who was tasked with taking down the Hulk, convinces Stern to inject him with the replicated blood, creating the Abomination, who, unlike Banner, enjoys the power and goes on a rampage. Banner convinces Ross that the Hulk is the only one who can stop Blonsky, so the two form an uneasy alliance, and Banner is released from custody. Much smashing later, and the Hulk wins the day and leaps off into the distance. Cut to Banner, meditating somewhere tropical, and then transforming into the Hulk in a more controlled manner. So today we are joined by the wonderful Lisa Mangas so that we can talk about the Hulk. Lisa, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? I'm Lisa Manglass. I'm an assistant professor of physics at Francis Marion University, which is in South Carolina. Um, but my focus is teaching in our health physics program, which is basically our program that trains our students to work in the field of radiation protection. Uh, before I went back for my PhD to do this job that I do now, I was an environmental health physicist. So I did a lot of work at places that had used radiation in the past, seeing how things move through the environment, calculating doses to or potential doses to workers, members of the public, that kind of thing. Um, so my, pretty much my whole career is revolved around the use of radiation. Um, and I did a lot of research in the area of radiation biology for my PhD. So this kind of fits into that pretty well. <laughs> Very conveniently, we're talking about radiation in the body. First of all, what the heck would he have done to himself if he zapped himself with that supposedly that much radiation? So listen, if you are really into science, if you can't just suspend disbelief and just go with it, you're never going to enjoy a movie ever. Again, <laughs> yeah. Right? So, you know... <laughs> As we found. So, like, I actually have a pretty low bar for this. And my personal preference is the more they just kind of try to hand wave things and just make things up, it's actually better than if they try to use real terms and real science to make it all make sense, right? So, like, things like vitarays, I'm kind of for because it's not a real thing, right? So I don't have to worry about how that would actually work because it's not real. But when they start 
showing this be with gamma rays, we get into a problem in that we understand gamma rays pretty well. There's a lot of things they can and can't do. When we talk about the kind of radiation that hurts people or what we think of that would be the mutations, you know, that kind of thing, we're talking about ionizing radiation. And what ionizing radiation means is that it basically is energetic enough that it can ionize water. It can eject electrons off of water and turn it into ions. That's important because anything it ionizes is a problem. And that's kind of how we hurt our DNA is that we basically like rip the atoms apart essentially with by, by putting so much energy in it sort of blows our atoms of our DNA up. But what really happens a lot of time is what's called indirect action where we ionize the water that's surrounding our DNA and our cells. Um, and that water being ionized is we have those free radicals and they're very effective at starting to pull apart the structure of our DNA. And that's how we get harmed by this radiation. So Anything when we're talking about this sort of radiation is, is would, would be ionizing radiation. That starts, if you're familiar with your electromagnetic spectrum, somewhere within UV, and that's actually pretty controversial about where exactly is the bar for ionizing radiation. Is it somewhere in inside of the UV spectrum, or is it just, just to the right, just slightly smaller wavelengths? Um, but basically, when we talk about gamma, we, we're talking about photons that are being accelerated. We also have like neutrons, uh, electrons. Uh, we have alpha particles, which are basically helium nuclei. Those are the kind of four major ones. But technically, you can accelerate like any nucleus of any atom and, and do damage with it and deposit energy that way. Um, so all these things would be sort of our ionizing radiation. Um, so when you get hit with high doses of gamma, what's happening usually is a lot of this uh, direct in a lot of indirect action where we're ionizing our water and we basically just sort of rip our DNA apart. So it explodes. Um, so we kind or of or we just melt. <laughs> well, you know, the cells just die. Basically, the cells just die. Um, and what would happen is, you know, I mean, if you get to a certain point, you you end up with so much heat energy as part of this. That's when you have like an explosion mm. or somebody, you know. But if you're talking about the range where people are still alive, what you basically do is just kill your cells. Um, we can cause mutations, but generally what's happening when we cause mutations is um, this whole idea that getting hit with radiation would cause some mutation that would make you have a special power. That's unfortunately one of those parts of like superhero science. That's just, there's just no, there's really no precedent for anything like that at all, right? Like kind of one of two things happens really is that um, you either cause a mutation that doesn't cause any problems right away, um, but usually the mutations are related to um, basically your cell's ability to know when it should stop dividing and stop multiplying um, or when it should know basically to, to kill itself because that's part of the cell's processes is it knows when it's time to kind of let go. And when it loses the ability to do both of those things essentially is when we have a cancer that happens. So um, you actually have to have kind of two sets of mutations for that to happen. Um, or the other thing that happens is the cells just die. Well, again, I guess the third thing is that there's some kind of a, you know, we damage our DNA, but the cells do have processes to repair itself. And then it'll try to repair itself. And then it may do a good job. It may do a bad job. If it does a really bad job, the cell will say, okay, nope, we, we can't go on. And the cell will, you know, terminate itself and won't, won't be alive anymore. Um, but like this idea that we have some kind of mutation is, is that's really pretty shaky ground. We see that in some animals that there's mutations that um, this would be things that happen to the offspring. We've got 
ever actually seen evidence of that in humans, it doesn't mean it couldn't happen. It's mostly just at such a low background rate that we can't really see it hmm. um, out of the general population. You know, earlier you were talking about the idea of the Vita rays, how like that's great because it's not something that exists so we can just kind of hand wave it. You know, with the idea that the Hulk was created in, I think, 1962, like how much has our understanding of gamma radiation <laughs> grown in that now almost 60 years gosh that is a good question uh that's a great question actually like is that something that probably back then they were like well no one will ever know how this works either <laughs> well i mean maybe the the expectation of what they expected people to the general public to know about it could mm. would certainly be and um a big factor there you know something that blows my mind every time i think about it about like ionizing radiation in my whole field of study is that um we only first figured out how to make x-rays in the 1890s. And so there was actually less than a 50 year span of time from the time we first discovered how to artificially create ionizing radiation to the time we blew up an atomic bomb. Um, Yikes. So, I mean, it's, it was really, I mean, it was very much the wild west of science in that era of just, I mean, when they first started making x-ray machines, the way that they would calibrate whether or not they were up too high was that the x-ray techs would just stick their hand in it. And once they start, once their skin started to show burns, they would take, they would say, okay, that's good. That's how long you can stay. Ow. <laughs> like that's, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, now we know, I mean, we would never ever want actual, that kind of acute injury from radiation. You know, that's a, that's a thing we avoid at all costs, right? So how long did they live? Like, what was the average lifespan of an x-ray tech at that point? You know what I mean? Like a lot of them pretty young. Yeah. Um, actually, and this is another, I've, I've read some things that suggest that, um, so Marie Curie actually died of aplastic anemia, which is a very, very rare disease and almost certainly caused by her exposure to radiation. And there's a lot of people who think that actually, despite all the things she was doing with radiation, the thing that probably caused that, that that ended up killing her was that she had a whole program called the petite curies during world war one because they had finally figured out how to use x-rays and if you think about that that was a huge change for the field mm -hmm. of medicine right because we can we can actually see inside the body without cutting someone open tremendous yeah. um and so she basically designed portable x-ray equipment to bring out in the field during world war one and and basically trained a bunch of women to run this x-ray equipment that could be put inside of like essentially like a model T type hmm. vehicle and roll it out into the fields and be able to do like on the spot x-rays. And there's actually some people who are pretty sure that the doses that she received from doing all of those radiations in that time, um, or all those x-rays in that time is probably what gave her huh. <laughs> the aplastic anemia that eventually killed her despite all the things she did. Um, which is, I mean, a pretty cool legacy, I guess, if they're going to have to, you're going to have to go. I uh, mean, yeah. I, yeah, like hundreds of thousands of soldiers were affected by this program in a, in a very positive way, right? Like, and now millions, if you think about it, like millions of people yeah. now. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was interesting when, as I was reading, like, one of the things I was fascinated by is that Marvel, especially when you compare it to DC, is obsessed with radiation, at least in some of their early mm -hmm. characters Spider Man, the Fantastic Four. And so I started looking around, like, why? And apparently, Stan Lee talked about the fact that when he was writing these stories and creating these characters, there was a lot of divided opinion on radiation as a whole on, on the whole idea on nuclear, whatever, because yeah, the, the nuclear bombs had been used, but also there was this bright, you know, in this time period, the fifties and sixties, that whole idea of nuclear power plants and forever having energy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so he decided to tap in to that feeling of both fear and hope. We essentially by the fifties had to start setting some, some rules for how we expose people to radiate. I and mean, we had some before this, but we were really trying to standardize this 
Um, and, and the really big concern for a long time was hereditary effects, and by which we mean like those mutations that would be passed on to your offspring and that your offspring would have some kind of negative or harmful mutation because of that. Um, and when we set our first sets of limits and we set this idea of um, this is, I mean, I could do a whole podcast episode, I could do a whole podcast series on this, but we kind of set all of our regulatory stuff on this idea of a linear no threshold model, which means that every tiny bit more radiation you give someone, you're increasing the chance of a cancer, you're increasing the chance of harm, um, and that there's no threshold. So like most of our chemical toxins, we have some threshold at which we say anything that's less than this is probably fine. Like we don't think there's any negative effect at less than this, but radiation was set with this linear no threshold and it was based on very, very little data um, that was suggesting that maybe we needed to protect against these potential hereditary effects because people were really afraid of this idea of, of getting mutations from radiation exposure. Um, and, and we learned the primary way we really learned by about the 60s that this probably wasn't true and wasn't a major concern was from our cohort of people from who were the atomic bomb survivors in Japan. Um, and we have actually have a pretty uh, you know, there's certainly some ethical problems with how that data was originally collected and not shared with the people who it affected. They tried to work on that over time. But in general, um, they had very good follow up with people. Um, they had a very good they had, did it as a cohort study. So they had a very equivalent population of people who weren't affected to kind of compare things to. And that was really the population of people that we saw initially. OK, we're really we're not really seeing these genetic hereditary effects above any kind of normal background at all. Um, and as I kind of mentioned before, like this idea of a hereditary effect, we have seen it in certain animals. And when we can do big enough studies, we do see it. So there's certainly no reason to say it definitely never happens in humans just because we've never statistically observed it. But what we know is that it probably happens at such a low rate and they're not unique mutations that are special because you were exposed to radiation as opposed to things that you could get from any other way that you would have a random mutation that causes some kind of issue, right? So one of the things he's trying to do, what Banner thinks he's doing when he's doing these experiments, and we're not even going to get into how dumb doing an experiment on yourself is, because that's what every hero in every movie does. World War Z, you name it. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to inject myself. Every hero and most villains. Yeah, right? Um, but he's he's supposedly trying to test ways to make humans naturally resistant to radiation is that a field of study that's actually happening like is there a way to make us resistant without putting us in giant suits i guess on some level yeah that is a, that is an area of, of interest right um a big challenge for any kind of space travel is that once you get outside the magnetic influence of earth remember how i said like you can basically accelerate any atom and you'll you can do damage to dna so out in space, first of all, we have solar radiation. We have protons that are being ejected, mostly protons ejected from the sun at really high speeds that can have a lot of energy and hurt us. We also have this galactic cosmic radiation that's just everything up to like particles like iron that are being accelerated from all directions. They're sort of from the primordial stuff that made up the universe. And, um, and so if one of the challenges we have with space travel is like the longer we're out in space, the more problems we have with that sort of radiation exposure, even to the point that for long-term space travel, that kind of, those particles have so much momentum that they can actually damage even like physical materials over time. So making sure that the integrity of how a ship is built and how the, especially the electronics are built over time isn't being damaged by the radiation hitting it. So there's certainly, 
in that sort of grand scheme of things, there is kind of a long-term interest in if there's something we could do to make us more radio resistant. But I think right now the research is more fundamental than that. The research is really in this idea of like, okay, we have certain species of, especially we look at kind of our single cells and our, and especially a lot of our funguses too, um, that are really exquisitely radio resistant. And we don't know exactly why, because when we look at lots of different species of animals, we're talking about, um, a lot of factors that come in, including things of how how good the genes they have are at repairing damage, um, how large their chromosomes are to begin with. That's the other part of this that makes all of this stuff kind of difficult to hand wave is that this radiation damage, it's essentially a random process. We're just shooting stuff at our cells. And if it happens to hit the right place at the right time, you know, there's a lot of empty space in our cells and our atoms and all of those things. Um, and so we're not necessarily hitting the exact same spot of our DNA every time, right? We're just sort of shooting these different particles or photons out. And if they interact in the right place to damage DNA, they do. Um, so we, some of our, some of our species are just better at repair in general. Um, a big factor is that some of our species just have more than two copies of their chromosomes. And that can make a really big difference in how radio resistant they are. Um, the size of the chrom of chromosomes in general and how much um, kind of junk DNA there is and how large those chromosomes are, that can all have a factor. Because again, this is just sort of a random process of how stuff gets damaged. So we understand some of that, but we also have some species that are really just exquisitely radiosensitive in ways that we don't really know the reasons why. Um, and so there's certainly research in that field of looking, trying to understand those mechanisms from a very fundamental standpoint and figure out what's happening there. Sure. I mean, long-term, I think that that probably is at the heart of why we care about that, right? We have to think about why we would care about that kind of fundamental science. And surely that's an application. What's interesting is use. as you're talking, I'm thinking through all the space movies I've seen and how many of them don't ever address that these people would be bombarded constantly. Mm -hmm. Like they just kind of speaking of hand waving, it's like, eh, they're in a spaceship. It's fine. <laughs> I never, you know, it's something I hadn't really thought about for a long time either. In that, you know, when we have, I was saying before, once you're outside of the magnetic influence of earth, the magnetic, our magnetics, uh, our magnetic field basically like deflects this radiation away from us. Right. Um, and that's even more true um, on large planets like Jupiter. Um, and But what happens is we also end up with these sort of bands of radiation where they're sort of kind of trapped in sort of a cycle. And the ones around Jupiter are so tremendous that I, I was reading about it when I guess it was Juno, right? Juno was Jupiter's probe, was there. Like one of the biggest challenges with that was actually designing equipment that would withstand the constant radiation exposure. That was actually one of the biggest challenges in terms of like a long-term uh, probe out there kind of circling Jupiter was withstanding that radiation that hadn't even occurred to me. And I mean, this is like my field of study until I was reading that. So it made me think about that a lot too, because, you know, when we think about some of the most likely places to potentially colonize out in space, like the moons of Jupiter are certainly on pretty high on that list, right? Uh, but making sure that we're in the right position so that we're not in that band of radiation is definitely a problem. Yeah, it, um, I've been watching For All Mankind on on Apple, and they actually have a, se a sequence where there's a huge, huge solar flare, and people on Earth are going to be fine, but the folks that are up on the moon have to get to shelter because of that radiation, yeah. and I thought that was pretty interesting. So Stan Lee uh, gets gamma sickness by drinking soda that is contaminated with Bruce Banner's blood. No. The first thing I wanted to point out was having done port security, we check for radiation when it comes into the country. 
uh, when we go aboard oh, a ship. Oh, so much. Oh, oh very, very, very much. much. <laughs> to the point that uh, a big enough cargo container of avocados will set it off, as well as bananas. Mm-hmm. Avocados and bananas, like we used to check the manifest and all go, damn it, anytime we saw that there was avocados or bananas. Because the problem is they give off enough radiation to ping our instruments. And then we have to do extra searches to make sure that it's the uh, avocados and bananas. <laughs> so my question for you is could you actually get radiation poisoning or gamma sickness or sick from drinking the bodily fluids? That sounds even worse, but let's roll with it. The bodily fluids of the person with the radiation. So if we're going to, if we're going to just accept that somehow he has uh, a lot more, he's more radioactive in some way that he can withstand. Right. Um, as first of all, as you said, that small, it was a small amount of blood really. Cause he thought he even cleaned up the blood. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you see, there's just like a little splash in the soda mm-hmm. bottle. And also it turned the soda like a horrible color. So why anyone would drink that? I don't know. But <laughs> you know, it, like if it was, if it was something that was that had such a high concentration of rad, you could get sick from drinking it, but there's no way that it would get, first of all, if he was that radioactive, that that little bit of blood would be enough to give someone acute radiation syndrome. Um, which is what it would be called, by the way, not gamma sickness, right? Acute radiation syndrome would be the would be the name. Uh, but he, no one would ever be able to be near him, like at all, right? Like he mm. would be so radioactive that no one would be able to be anywhere near mm. him. Um, that's kind of a fun in uh, was is in Doom Patrol. They they kind of yeah. have one of the characters is so radioactive that no one can be near him, and he has the bandages, and they're like yeah. a radiation block, and like that's that's something I actually liked. I mean, is is that real? No, you couldn't make that yeah. kind of perfect like radiation block with some bandages but they went ahead and just kind of this is how we do it and i'm like okay fair fair enough right but so like he would be that level right like Mm -hmm. so other people wouldn't be able to be around him at all he wouldn't be working in a factory with other people if he was that radioactive okay even if we're gonna just suspend our disbelief and believe there was some way that he was living while that radio while being that radioactive right i kind of (laughs) want to recommend for you because rev and i were talking about it before the show marvel ruins which came out in 1995 is a two comic series where it's like the alternate universe and what actually happens to any of the characters so like bruce banner turns into a giant pile of tumors and (laughs) um Spider-Man actually turns into a radioactive mutant who accidentally and who can't be near anybody, but doesn't know it until he's so sick. He can't reach out for help or whatever. So he basically kills the entire uh, newsroom with radiation by just being a human radio bomb. I like, I I feel like after this Rev, we should just send her those two comics (laughs) and and then bring her back on Hulk part two. Um, Because the other thing is this idea that his blood is the next super soldier serum um, kind of comes into play because that's how the abomination happens. So the Mr. Blue, and he finds out that the guy has been basically replicating off of his blood these super serums and it creates the abomination who by the way um is one of the two uh characters in the entire mcu who are actually able to physically damage the hulk so he's like the hulk plus 
So could you actually, like, we already talked about that his blood wouldn't be radiated enough, but like, how much of his blood would you need to like create that serum? This is a, this is an interesting question because it's like, I don't know how you would even deliver it in a way. I guess the idea would be that you'd inject it into somebody, but you can only put so much stranger blood. Yeah. And then they were directly infusing it into his spine. Like that's how they, they put that new serum into uh, Blonsky was into his spinal I guess were they like was the idea that they were maybe like somehow like separating it out of the they would they would make the blood first and then have to separate it out of the blood it would make a lot more sense if it was that what made him the Hulk was some kind of some kind of like viral agent right that they were able to then pull that out of his blood because it had replicated enough in there. And that would be, I guess, what you'd have to do from like a radiation standpoint. No, I mean, there's a, they throw a lot of, they just really throw a lot of terms around. Like he had like, I don't know, like gamma, what was it? Like gamma bombs stored in his amygdala. Wait, hold on. I think I wrote it down. Let me see. Uh, Gamma pulses stored in his amygdala. Like that's nothing. That's not it. I mean, yeah. And whenever they show his blood in his system, and this is true, I think across all Hulk movies, it's mm-hmm. it almost is like a virus because you see that he's got the green. These yeah, these blood cells, and then all of a sudden they they puff up and become green, and they kind of leach out and touch the other yeah. blood cells, and it it strangely becomes almost like a virus. And I guess that kind of does move us into this part of the conversation where it's like, okay, like. What would you potentially, and I know this is such a new field of study, but like we know that radiation has some benefits. For example, it can help us kill cancer. But as we're moving forward, are people looking that there might be some other physical benefits for us with radiation? I think I think I'm pretty safe to say no, not really. <laughs> yeah, we try really hard to protect ourselves. I mean, most of what we've advanced in terms of how we use radiation to, much like chemotherapy, the ways that we get rid of cancer are essentially things that would kill any cell. Right. And that's like that's where the limit with chemotherapy is. I mean, you're basically just putting toxins into your body and, and hoping that because cancer, we, we can tag them in certain ways with certain chemicals and minerals and things that our body uses that hopefully there'll be the sort of preferential uptake to our tumors because our tumors are constantly replicating and they have some special features and we can try to tag them in ways that that like most of it will go to the tumor and will save as much healthy tissue as possible. And that's where our limit is on how much chemo you can get at a time um, is, is how much you can give without, without also killing the good cells. And it's the same thing with radiation, right? Like we're just, we're just shooting radiation beams at a tumor and kind of hoping to kill the cancer cells faster than we're killing the healthy cells. And that's why we have a lot of pain and issues within the areas where you do it. And the ways that we really improve this over time is coming up with physical science ways to limit the exact areas where that radiation deposits its energy and to really hone it in and make it smaller and smaller. And then now we're pretty good at shaping a beam in a way that we can hit pretty distinctive targets in the body. And we're, t- we're still talking macro scale. We're not talking on the scale of like atoms, right? We're talking on the scale of of millimeters, um, maybe micrometers. But like the the problem we run into when we start to get that specific is that also you're, we're just sacks of water that are moving around all the time, right? So if we get too, like we, we could shape our beam exactly like the tumor, but then that means if you wiggle even a millimeter on the table while you're getting your treatment, you're not going to hit the tumor anymore, right? So yeah. like that's sort of our our... Our in, our innovations are figuring out how to better shape that beam to hit as little healthy tissue as possible. But in terms of like it being like a beneficial by shooting high levels of radiation, that's not really something we think would have a potential cure or 
benefit in the future. So Rev, I think I'm going to add, we're just big wiggling sacks of water uh, to the t-shirts we have in the store. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, um, you know, they are going to also, with She-Hulk coming out this year, I'm wondering how they're going to get around this because in the comic books, She-Hulk gets her powers because she's the cousin of Bruce Banner. She's in a bad accident and he does a transfusion. I can't see any way Bruce Banner in the Marvel Cinematic Universe would be willing to give his like to willing to do a transfusion at all. Well, I mean, he might not consent to the transfusion, but we saw clearly that they're capable of making huge quantities of his blood. So, I mean, I wouldn't rule out that they had gotten a sample of it at some Mm -hmm. point and have a stock of the blood that he doesn't know about or didn't consent to. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be very unethical, but the ethics are out the window as well. So, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) they do all sorts of stuff where you're like, ooh, that's questionable. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, I mean, I think that to me that would be, if we're trying to stick with with the the science as it has been presented up until now, it would have to be something like that. I mean, and I guess the other the other option would be just you know he's in a position where he would he doesn't want to see her die. I guess that would be my assumption is that because he's now in a place in the movies where he and the Hulk are one, like it's not this Jekyll and Hyde yeah, anymore. He is that's true. Bruce Banner's mind has started the Hulk's body. That this is my only living family member. I don't want to lose them. And he's learned a lot about how to control it. So he's confident that he yeah. can help her or, you know, put her That's in the right path for could, that. Or- that actually could be a really cool conundrum for him and an interesting character yeah. choice. Uh, because we've we've discussed a little bit uh, about um, Ruffalo versus Norton. Because it's Norton in the movie, but it's Ruffalo later. I think... Norton's version of Hulk wouldn't give the blood, but I could see Ruffalo's version because he's so much more loving and conflicted. And I don't want to say squishy, but he's just, he's that cute, adorable, really loving nerd. And I could see him really struggling with it. And yeah, I could see him being like, you know what? I'll just teach her how to, how to live with it and and do it. I can, I can agree that the Norton character would, would be more likely to still let her die, right? Yeah. Um, I had yeah. read that the original opening sequence to this movie was supposed to be a, like a scene of him trying to kill himself, basically. And then they were like, that's Uh-oh. that's a little too grim dark, bro. We can't do that. And they cut it and they changed it, right? Like, that's yeah. a... It's a pretty consistent theme in the Hulk of him trying... Like, he doesn't want this anymore. Yeah. He, he constantly but... tries to kill himself and it just brings well, him back I, to life. Ruffalo's character mentions it. Yeah. Like, because, yeah, he says in one of the movies, and it might have been to Thor, I think, where yeah. he's like... Do you think I haven't tried the big? He, the other guy always stops me. Yeah, the big guy brings me back. Oh, uh, this was an interesting statement I found, and I just kind of wanted to get your take on it. Uh, kind of going back to why are all the characters, uh, you know, radiated to get their powers? There's um, a professor, Paul Bryan's. He's at Washington State University, and he basically said that radioactive radioactivity is something we've kind of mythologized so that it's easier for us to deal with. Oh, that's a that's a heavy quote. It's a very heavy quote. <laughs> um, you know, radiation has been a a big thing of of fear for a lot of people, and it's this you know because it's this incredibly powerful, energetic, mm-hmm. damaging, harmful thing that we can't see, we can't smell, we can't hear, we can't touch. You know, like it's not it's it's completely intangible except for the fact that we can see people die from it. We can see you know, and, and it's the ultimate boogeyman. Yeah, and and you know, there's a lot of the the amount of time that something will stay contaminated, and there's nothing we can do about it if we have an accident. You know, that's mm-hmm. a really scary thing for a lot of people. It's a 
a really interesting kind of like confluence of science is that California was initially set up to be like one, I think the first, the actual first commercial power reactor in the US was in the state of California. And, you know, California has stayed pretty vehemently anti-nuke anti for most of it, the span of nuclear power mm -hmm. plants. Um, and an interesting thing that happened there was that people think of geology as a science we haven't learned that much about recently, but you know, plate tectonic theory and understanding how earthquakes occur in certain places and why, that was actually still pretty new science around the 50s, 60s um, when our nuclear reactors were being built. And so <laughs> a lot of the original proposed nuclear reactors, and I think even some of the ones that got built, were actually built like basically right on fault lines in California because they didn't know what fault lines were when they sighted them. Loved the fact that you said about being invisible because a lot of times invisible forces we tend to, or forces we can't explain, there's a myth about them before we learn about them. I mean, you know, they've seen with one of the theories about Merlin and wizards back in the, you know, days when they burned women for being witches was that they were scientists, that they were the people who knew how to use different chemicals or different things to get different results. And it was seen as being a wizard. Well, you know, that that, that was one of the proposed ways of dealing with handled uh, or buried nuclear waste, right, is to create a, a church around it, basically, mm -hmm. a nuclear priesthood uh, that was actually <laughs> proposed in U.S. government documents. So, um, Whoa, cool. I got to go find yeah, that. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like the beginning of a terrifying novel. Oh, yeah. The, the effort that was put into figuring out how you continue to warn people about buried nuclear waste for 10,000 years is, is quite an interesting thing to read about. Wow. Well, if you want to talk about kind of how we have even worked some of this stuff into sort of mythology and religion and, and folklore and that kind of thing. Even if you look at some of the different indigenous groups in the Southwestern US and like Northern Mexico, where there is just naturally a lot of uranium and a lot of it's very close to the surface. And um, there's several indigenous groups that have part of their, you know, part of their traditions and, and their lore is, is avoiding these yellow rocks and not disturbing them at all. Because if you disturb them, you've basically angered spirits. And it's almost certainly some kind of a reaction to the harmful things that can happen if you say start making um, the things you eat off of or the things you store water in out of rocks that have a lot of uranium in them, hmm. that sort of thing. I mean, that's certainly been a thing that was present in, in cultures. And I'm sure there's other cultures in other parts of the world that have had that. That's the one I'm familiar with off the top of my head. But well, that's really cool. It's such an interesting thing when you look at storytelling throughout like global history. I mean, we already kind of know how you would solve this problem because he melts in the in the credits <laughs> if this was real. So I think the kind of the alternate question, if you were gonna make something that was that was big, powerful, you know, like the Hulk, how would you use the technologies that you are familiar with to create, to power something so that you could still have a Hulk without just melting Edward Norton in the first three minutes. Yeah. Before I completely answer this question, I do have to say one thing because I haven't addressed it and it is important to me to say this at some point, which is that I do want to make it clear that getting shot with external radiation doesn't inherently make things radioactive. Mm. Like that's not how that works. Now there's a certain extent to which that's like, if you have really, if you get, if you get hit with a lot of neutrons, you get something called neutron activation and you can activate certain things in the human body. Sodium is one of the big ones that'll get activated, but they're not usually long periods of time mm. where you stay radioactive from that. At very high, high energies with gamma, you can have a gamma neutron reaction that can cause, again, you make neutrons. So then you can activate things in the body that make part of your body radioactive. But 
that's a that would be a small fraction of the processes that are happening here. So right off the bat, I just I have to say that because I haven't said it yet. Mm-hmm. But this idea that suddenly you would become this extremely radioactive thing because you were externally yeah. irradiated, like that's not how that would work. You would have to take in some sort of mm-hmm. radioactive material into your body. And some of those materials have quite a long biological half-life in terms of how long it takes your body to clear it, especially anything that um, anything that likes to go to your bones, um, anything that's chemically a lot like calcium. So like our radium is a big one. So it could be that the abomination is the more realistic way to get the Hulk than getting the Hulk. Cause the Hulk was shot with the, he had the serum in him, but he was radiated that way. Whereas with the abomination, they had these supposedly irradiated like bl- super serum and they were injecting it right into his spine in large doses. So neither of them are realistic, but if we had to look at it from this, like the, the closer to realistic would actually be the way Mm -hmm. the abomination was made, not the way the Hulk was made. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, what I can think of is the best I can come up with. And and this is, you know, I've I've obviously had this conversation with other scientists before, so I can't (laughs) claim that this is all just my original thoughts and, you know, like, but this is, the the best way that I would want to try to make this work is that especially now that in a place like the MCU, we have all these different timelines, we have aliens, we have, you know, we have things that are very foreign to the science that we know. I would propose that like the serum that goes in is some kind of um, like viral agent that can do gene editing. And that we have genes from like an alien race or something mm-hmm. that can have these powers. And that maybe somehow the way that we convince the human body to be able to turn that on and off is that by having that high dose of ionizing radiation, that that could cause some kind of like epigenetic response that would be like flipping that switch on and off. Because mm-hmm. we have genes, you know, you have your genes and then you have whether or not those genes are turned on or off. And there's a kind of two different levels of our genetics and how that works. So could the giant dose of radiation be the thing that that, that particular stressor, because anything that stresses cells, right? So you just end up with Apple Watch 27 has an eye, like a radiation <laughs> kick button that just zaps you real quick. Like, here's my blood oxygen. Oh, wait, I need to hulk out. You push your watch button and... Yeah, and then we just kind of shock it and stress it out and now we've turned that switch on and maybe we've turned several switches on and there's only one that now goes on and off and so we can access those genes in a way we couldn't before or even just that bruce banner was somehow special that he was some kind of mutant that already had that weird weird genetic material in him and that it got Mm -hmm. activated by the stress of that i think that that's Mm -hmm. a closer to real way um I mean, that's the kind of, so that's the kind of research that I was working on for my PhD actually was this idea. We were working on a grant from Mm -hmm. the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which is, does exactly a US agency that does what it sounds like, right? And our research was kind of looking at bacteria to see if we could find some sort of unique signature in terms of what genes were turned on and off when exposed to radiation. And specifically, if we could see, remember before I was talking about the different types, our gammas, our neutrons, our betas, our alphas, Mm -hmm. if we could see a difference in that response based on the type of radiation. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of the the research is headed because those are relatively new tools from a scientific standpoint in terms of how we can sort of analyze what is going on and what's there. So, I mean, it's possible that we then apply those tools and then in, in 50 years, we look real dumb for saying that in movies again. <laughs> you know, that's possible. Uh, but I think it's certainly at least a little bit more of a it would make more sense to me if it was something like that, where we had some kind of gene editing that went on and then the radiation became a way of sort of flipping that switch permanently on. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have some other switch that can kind of turn it off and on and off at will at this point. 
Yeah, I think if I was going to make it a three-minute movie, I would have Betty Ross just tackle him and not let him turn on the machine. Um, I would have her not just stand by and be like, this is a bad idea. I'd have her yank the plug and go, you're a dumbass. And they said that he (laughs) tested it on himself because he was so sure that it would work. And like, okay, but what if he had just like one time, just once, tried it on some cells on a slide and watched them for like a small sample of cells first before, like, why was he so sure that it would work? Like that was, he was being a real bad scientist if he just decided that based on what something someone had given him in writing said Mm. was going to happen, like that was counter to all the science (laughs) we've had so far. It's like, like, what if we just tried this on the small scale, just one time, just to see what would happen? And then he'd know pretty quickly that it wasn't a radio mm. resistance agent, you know? What about you, Rev? What would you do? Uh, I think it would have been that, like, you know, trying to to line up any of the science that we've talked about, that maybe he's got some abnormality in his skin so that when he gets irradiated, like, it absorbs in and, and stays so he doesn't radiate it back out mm-hmm. to sicken people around him because, you know, we recognize the Hulk as green and he's supposed to be gray. He's green because of an issue with the printer when the comics first came out. Um, and I think that dense gray skin holding in huh. the radiation. Now, see, that could connect, too, to the really radio-resistant fungi that we think are kind of, like, we think there's something kind of in the cell wall structure that they have that makes them so radio-resistant. So that could be a thing, too. That could be part of the gene editing, right? Is that the skin kind of becomes... Yeah. I didn't realize he was supposed to be gray. Let, let's just <laughs> throw some fungal DNA at Bruce Banner, because, like, funguses are weird. <laughs> well, I was going to say, fungus has become such a big thing in sci-fi in the last, like, five, six, seven years, like it's pretty fascinating because mushrooms just are that weird. They really are. I mean, they really are. It's There's so much we've realized that we really didn't understand, Mm -hmm. partially because we sort of, I think, underestimated fungi for a long time and kind of lumped them in with like bacteria or other, like we always wanted to lump them in with something else. And we're kind of learning more now in the last 20 years that they're really truly just their own thing, right? Um, Mm. And there's a lot of unique and special properties and I, I'm not surprised that it, you know, has become more and more written into science fiction because some of the stuff that's real almost feels like science fiction when you read it. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa, for uh, chatting with it's us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun to see what they do with Hulk uh, when She-Hulk comes out later this year. So thank you for joining us, everyone, and we will catch you next time. This episode of Disaster Peace Theater, hosted by Anna Visneski was edited and produced by Brandon Wentz, with intro by Dan Cruiser and Chris Hill. You can contact us, learn more about the hosts, and check out our merch store at disasterpeacetheater.wtf.